0: please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. All right, we're in Ephesians chapter 2 this evening, and as you remember, or this morning, and as you remember, we are looking at some things that you need to know. So I am breaking my practice and that is preaching expo- more expositionally. You know, sometimes we use that term and we use it incorrectly. And a lot of times guys are saying that they're preaching expositionally and they're not. Um, they're just preaching topically through a book. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, be that as it may, um, we're not going to be preaching through any specific book At this moment, I don't know how long it'll last, but through the first part of this year, at least we're going to preach more topical and textual sermons on things we need to know. And, of course, the first thing we need to know is about salvation. And, of course, we had to deal with other things here in the beginning of January because of the way it just all works out in the calendar. But now we want to focus our attention here this morning and the title of my next few sermons, however that many that may be, is this topic, the importance of, get ready, big word, the importance of soteriology. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 1, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy... Because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made, Christ, and, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord, and it is eternally true. And I have deliberately used this excuse me theological term soteriology in order to get a first impression and obviously not an outward response but an inward response from you in order to help us make some self-examination in our own hearts because really this is just going to be an introduction And by response, I'm speaking of an internal response or an attitude that was inward since no one jumped up. And uh, no one jumped up and voiced any concern or statements by saying, I don't concern myself with theology since the most important thing is to know Jesus. Well, listen, I know many people are not concerned about knowing Jesus anything these days <laughs> I was going to say so don't, I'm not concerned about knowing certain things or these things but it's like oh actually we're just not concerned about knowing anything really they will respond that they are not theological or doctrinal or that they or they will just play dumb it's the card we like to play everybody has a card in the world right that they like to play You know, for some it's the race card, for some it's the man card, for some it's the dumb card, right? And we all play that occasionally, the dumb card. We just pull it out whenever we need it. As if we are incapable of knowing anything. What's worse is that claiming ignorance, or in claiming ignorance, uh, they actually make a doctrinal statement. Stating their creed, or their belief, that one does not have to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, the master teacher. In today's Christianity, we have canonized the doctrine of nothingness. Remember, we have played upon this word before. You know, we have came along with the bright new idea that we were going to create a new religion. Religion in Western civilization. And they ask us, well, what's this religion about? It's like a Seinfeld skit, right? What's this religion about? Well, it's about nothing. Well, what do you believe? Nothing, because we're not doctrinal. What do you practice? Nothing. It's the religion about nothing. So... We have canonized this doctrine of nothingness in our affirmation that one does not have to be a student and a practitioner of Christ, which is what being a Christian should mean. A follower of Jesus in faith and practice, but we've made Christianity a religion about nothing. Now, I'm not saying that you can or should even aspire to be a theologian, and I'm going to... Sorry, I have to tell you, there's not one theologian in here this morning. You're not a theologian, I'm not a theologian. There are theologians in the world. Well, maybe there still are some, I don't know. Uh, But there used to be theologians in the world. Um, But we is not them. (laughs) We ain't it. We're not theologians. None of us, and I doubt if anyone here is in any time soon going to write a systematic theology. You see, to be a theologian, you have to be an expert on theology. And so, now we all think we are. It's just like every time you get on the internet, everybody thinks they're lawyers, they think they're doctors, they think they're everything under the sun, right? Um, they don't have any pedigree for it, and they've never, even, they've never even written a book report on anything contained in that topic. But we think we're experts about everything, and we think it's natural. <laughs> but what I'm saying is this. You may not get the equivalent of a doctor, doctorate degree in your knowledge of theology, But I don't think it's going too far to say that Christians should be expected to get an equivalent of a high school diploma. Right? Isn't that what society kind of deems as what is generally uh, expected? Is a high school diploma? That's what we strive for? Well, So when it comes to the knowledge of Christ and the knowledge of his truth, then if you was to spiritualize that, we should all be striving to get a high school diploma. Surely we should aspire to more than just Jesus loves me and now I lay me down to sleep. And I'm not disparaging those things. One time a guy got mad at me for saying that. I'm not disparaging it. I think it's even good for you to rotate prayers around, and even as an adult, to pray, now I lay me down to sleep. So don't get me wrong, children's Bible stories, prayers, and songs are important building blocks. But we have been commanded as Christians to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, according to 2 Peter 3.18. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is. That's a strong statement. You realize that, right? And this is, Jesus said, and this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know. Knowledge. To have knowledge of. Siliun wrote, To believe in a God is one thing. To know God another. See, the devils believe in God. That's just devilish faith. And that's typically what Americans have today, is devilish faith. Do you believe in God? Yeah, I believe. you believe in Jesus? Yes, I believe. Do you know God? Do you know Jesus Christ? Jesus said that eternal life is to know his Father, the only true God, and to know Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And while that brings up a question concerning what is sufficient knowledge, which we are not going to address here this morning because... For one, I believe in large degree it is a distraction. It's a distraction from what I'm trying to accomplish this morning. But it's also a distraction from the fact that followers of Jesus should have a desire to grow in their knowledge of him. To know God more and more and more and more and more and more. However, if we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and if we have faith that comes from God, regardless of how weak our exercise of that faith may be, the faith that God gives us is sufficient. Just ask the thief on the cross. But that is not the real question. The real question and matter for self-examination is our desire. Here, what Peter declared in his first epistle in chapter 2 and verse 2, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. So what he's saying is that this is actually a characteristic of those who have been born again. They have a desire. They have a desire of the word. Jerome wrote, who was an early church father, lived from 340 to 420 A.D., a long time ago, right? He wrote this. How could one live without the knowledge of Scripture through which one learns to know Christ Himself, who is the life of all believers? He's asking a question. If Jesus Christ is the life of all believers, how can believers live without the knowledge of Scripture? Therefore, one of the prayers of Paul for the Ephesians was that they would increase in knowledge. Here, Paul's words as he reveals this prayer for them in Ephesians chapter 1. So this, what I'm going to be doing is kind of like a summary of the book of Ephesians. So now, listen how he introduces this, and in, this is his prayer for the Ephesians. So remember, he begins with this doxology in the beginning, and... and um the one that everybody's scared of, and then, or some people think is just too deep. And then he says, therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And now he's going to list what he his prayers are for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. "...the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is to be named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. So there's this emphasis upon knowledge, and even in his prayer for knowledge for them, he even lists some knowledge that they absolutely need to know. In his letter to the Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul prayed for them as well, that they would walk worthy of the Lord, Fully pleasing him. There's another desire issue to address at some point in time, isn't it? Is that really our desire? Do we have the same desire that Paul had? That Paul would even pray for other Christians that they would accomplish this. So it must be a goal, right? It must be an objective to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. But then he says this, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Another early church father that I quoted from in Sunday school, John Chrysostom, he wrote this, This is the cause of all evils not knowing the scriptures. We go into battle without arms, he wrote, and how are we to come off safe? Remember the armor of God? We used to talk about that in Christianity a lot, that Christians have to be clothed in the armor of God. Well, one of the problems today is that as Christians, we're running around naked. Not just literally anymore, but spiritually. We're running around naked. And so he warned Christians that not knowing the scriptures is only going to produce more evil. He also went on to write this, For from ignorance of the scriptures have the countless evils of our time arisen. From this ignorance, the plague of heresies has broken out among us so violently. From this ignorance, so many live negligent lives. Just as men deprived of daylight would not walk straight, so those who do not look to the shining of the Holy Scriptures must needs be frequently sinning as they are walking in the worst of darkness. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul reveals that God gave the church the offices of apostles and prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And then he goes on to say the reason for it. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge "...of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should be no longer children tossed to and fro about and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. And one of the areas is growth in knowledge. You see, we confuse things. And by the way, what Paul is saying there is that we are deficient. Remember, he gave apostles and he gave prophets and he gave evangelists and he gave pastors and teachers why in order to perfect and one of the things we're negligent on is a proper knowledge and understanding but today you see we we confuse things when for whatever reason or purpose we fail to see all that is going on not only in what we are talking about here this morning in trying to introduce a subject, but also in all aspects of the Word. We fail to see this vertical and horizontal planes in which God is focused, in which God is working. And so coming from above... To below, God condescends to man in every aspect. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, which means in everything that comes from God, it is him condescending to men. That's vertical. So his revelation, he has revealed things unto us, and specifically, the revelation of his word has came vertically from top to bottom. And then, as we hear and receive the word, we are to respond back to God in humility, faith, and confession. Repentance. So you have that vertical. But the whole purpose of the vertical is to move us horizontally. To follow after, to walk after, to be disciples and students. To continue in. So, listen to these passages of Scripture. And it's going to be a little litany of uh, Scripture passages here. In Philippians 1, verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, Paul writes to the church at Philippi, that he, talking about God, which has begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Christ. Vertical, right? But the performance is going to take place horizontally. It enters vertically, from the higher to the lower, from God to man, even as man is on this horizontal plane. God continues to work vertically as man continues horizontally. In First Thessalonians chapter five, verse 23, "And the very God of peace sanctify you holy. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who called you, who also will do it to produce this. Consider more specific vertical statements. In Acts chapter 11 with the preaching of the apostles and the as they were seeing the work that was being done amongst the gentiles and it says that they glorified god saying then hath god also to the gentiles granted repentance unto life romans 8:28 or excuse me romans 8:28 Through 30. And we know that all things work together for good, everything on the horizontal works together for good, to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose, for whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren, moreover whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Vertical. Ephesians chapter 2, in verse 4 through 10, where we have just read, God is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. For even when we were dead on this horizontal plane, in trespasses and sins, he has quickened us, together with Christ, by grace, from God to man are we saved, and he has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. And so the conclusion is that we are saved by grace, not of works, right? We're saved by grace, not of works. We're saved by grace, not of works. Lest any man should boast. And then he goes on to say, it is a gift from God. I know, if, so if, if anybody ever does. If anybody ever listens to this, on the internet they're going to have a clue what's going on because they don't see all the motions and hand gestures that are going on but anyway for by grace are ye saved through faith not of yourselves it is a gift of god not of works lest any man should boast for we are his workmanship created in christ unto good works 2 Thessalonians 2, but we're bound to give thanks always to God for you, uh, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God has from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. How about Titus chapter 3, but after the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Hebrews 13, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. Uh, let's see, we're running out of time. I think we've made the point. So how about some horizontal passages? Okay. And take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your heart should be overcharged with uh, surfeiting and drunkenness, carelessness and drunkenness. And so that day come upon you unawares, Jesus said in Luke chapter 21. So he said, Concern yourself with the horizontal. How about 2 John eight? Look to yourselves. Boy, couldn't we have a heyday with that? Taking that out of biblical context. Instead of look to Christ and live, we could say, look to yourselves. The Bible says, right? But the Bible does say, look to yourselves. Look to yourselves that we lose not that which we have wrought, but that we receive it with the full reward. Hmm. Boy, that's scary for a reformed person to read. How about 1 Corinthians nine twenty one? Paul says, but I keep my body under subjection. Lest by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. How about John chapter 8? Jesus said, as he spake these words to many who believed on him, then he said to the Jews which believed on him, If, if you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. How about John 15? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue in my love. Hmm. So what does that mean if I don't continue? (laughs) That means you're not in his love. Continue in my love. And then he says, If you keep my commandments, You shall abide in my love. (laughs) See, just a few minutes ago, all the hyper-Calvinists were going. Now they're all mad and all the Armenians are going. Um, Let's see, can we go on and on and on? How about Jesus in Matthew 24? He who endures to the end, the end shall be saved. And everyone says, say, yeah, but that's only about tr- the tribulation. Well, it keeps going on. Paul says, I am afraid of you to the Galatians, lest I have bestowed my labor upon you in vain because you ran, ran well, and who has hindered you from obeying the truth? And let us not be weary in well-doing, because if we reap, Uh, for in due season we'll reap if we don't faint. How about the writer of Hebrews? But Christ has a son over his own house, whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope firm until the end. Sounds similar to what Jesus said, right? Um about verse 14 of Hebrews 3? For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. And we can keep going on and on and on and on, right? Do we need to keep beating the horse? And then there are passages that communicate both the vertical and the horizontal. At the same time. We saw a couple examples in the very beginning. But in Philippians chapter 1 verse 27. Only let your conduct. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come. And see you, or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving for the faith of the gospel. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but you it's a proof of salvation, and that from God. Everybody's going to think I'm trying to be Roman Catholic here in a minute, you know. All right. I'm trying to the vertical and the horizontal. I'm trying to make a point with it. And then he says, for you it has been granted on behalf of Christ. Not only to believe upon him, but to suffer for his sake. So, there are other places that we could look at that. How about the famous verse for some people, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You ever notice how some people just kind of cut one part out? Right? Right? It happens on all, all sides, right? And there's many more things that we could do, but my point here is that when we fail to see there is vertical God to man, vertical man to God, there's a God to man and a man to God vernacular in the word, and there's also the horizontal man to man vernacular you see when we fail to see the vertical and the horizontal we make a mess of things and go off or go astray outside of the bounds of scripture because we fail to take the whole of scripture and that is my job to get us to take the whole of scripture we are told in first peter chapter five peter charges the elders to shepherd the flock of God, which is among you as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So a, a shepherd is someone who tends, herds, feeds, and guards Flocks of sheep. Not sheep. Flocks of sheep. To maintain a flock of any size, depending upon the landscape and all that kind of stuff, one must be able to move the sheep from pasture to pasture. Must be able to lead the sheep without falling off the cliff, without getting into the swamps, without allowing the wolves and other predators to prey upon the flock. The duty of shepherds is to keep their flock intact, protect it from predators, and to keep them in good health. And of course, this term, shepherds and sheep, in the Bible is used constantly as metaphors for God and for Jesus, and for his people, and for the church, and the way that it is to be structured, and so forth. And we find this all throughout Christianity, in every branch, there is this emphasis upon it. But the Good Shepherd is one of the themes that we find in Scripture, right? And it's an illustration That encompasses many different ideas, including God's care for his people, but also in the tendency of humans to put themselves in danger, in being separated from the flock, to getting off away and astray and their inability to guide and to take care of themselves apart from the direct power and the leading of God in the church. But what we don't realize, and what's not emphasized many times, is that all the way even back into biblical times, you can go back into the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job. And Job says this, But now they mock at me, men younger than I, whose fathers I disdained to put with the dogs of my flock. All the way back to the oldest book, he's making an analogy of this aspect of using dogs, shepherds using dogs in guarding the flock and leading the flock. As a matter of fact, that's why the prophet Isaiah says, his watchmen are blind, they are all ignorant, they are all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. Sleeping, lying down, loving to slumber. A sheepdog is supposed to be a worker. A true sheepdog is a worker. They love to work, that's what they live for. Shepherds tell you that if they if their dogs do not get enough work, they go crazy. Anxious can't sit still, getting into all kinds of bad situations because they have to work. They live to work. And so the prophet's saying, yeah, these dogs, they don't want to do nothing. And then he says they're all greedy dogs and never have enough. And notice then what is said in Isaiah 56, immediately following that. They're dumb dogs. They can't bark. They're greedy dogs. They never have enough. And they are shepherds who cannot understand. They're connected there for a reason. Well, a herding dog is basically using predatory behavior to protect the flock and also to keep them as a flock. And even to move them. The dog uses predatory behavior. And so, we have this idea of shepherds and dogs. And so, I just want to point out this. One of the methods that's used by shepherds and sheepdogs in keeping the sheep herded together and moving in the right direction together is what they call a side-to-side method. Okay, so you, you, may, have, you may have dogs working a, a side over here because some of the sheep are coming out through here, but there's a shepherd or a sheepdog in the back who is working the flock to move them by going side-to-side. Side. Like this. And so when you put pressure in one area, there are some that get over here too far, right? And so you've got to put pressure back over here to move them back over. And then you've got to get over here to put pressure over here to move some who are going over here too far back over this way. And so... They must work side to side when leading and driving. The whole idea is to keep the herd moving in the right, or the flock moving in the right direction to avoid the rocky cliffs on the left and the swamps on the right. And so because there is so much confusion today, I want to take the next couple or a few sermons to move us in a right direction on soteriology, which is simply the study of the doctrine of Salvation. In one sense, this is going to be a summary of Ephesians. In one sense, it's going to be an exposition of Ephesians 2. But it's basically going to be a topical look at the important characteristics and doctrines concerning salvation that you absolutely need to know. See, we live in a day and age where it's becoming very difficult to communicate the gospel. You start talking about redemption and people are like, Repentance, and then if you use the word atonement, nobody views the world that way anymore. It used to be everybody did. All the religions, even pagan religions, were seeking to atone for their sins. Now we just celebrate it, relish in it. And so we're going to be looking at those things. And I'm using Ephesians because it is a good staff to use in going side to side to make sure that we do not get out in the swamps of what today would be called hyper-Calvinism or the cliffs of Arminianism. In the past, hyper-Calvinism would have been called simply determinism or antinomianism, and Arminianism would have been called perfectionism or compatibilism. But Ephesians is a good gauge of our inclinations, or heirs. If we can only truly preach the first three chapters faithfully, especially chapters 1 and 2, and not chapters 4 and 5, we are in danger of going astray categorically or practically into hyper-Calvinism. And it is also true if we cannot preach and profess chapters 1 and 2 faithfully, and simply just default to chapters 4 and 5, we run the risk of going astray into a works-based premise. And so our desire for you is to know Christ in receiving with understanding the word, which is able to make us wise unto salvation, to respond to his revelation in faith and repentance, and then continue exercising this faith in obedience to the headship of Jesus Christ. The vertical is to move us horizontally. And that's what we hope to accomplish. Father, we thank you for your word, and we know that it is eternally true. But we also know that we are influenced by so many different things. Whether it's our indwelling sin, or whether it is the practice of our sin, or whether it is the philosophy of the world. We know that we are, we are prone to mess things up, and so we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit among us to illuminate us in true knowledge and understanding of your word, so that we might know you and know your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our only hope for salvation. And since he is our only hope, may you grant unto us a desire to know him, to know his truths, to know his love, to know his commandments so that we might walk worthy of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray, amen.